All right. Good morning, everyone. Let me do a little bit of stage order here while you turn to the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Find uh, your one page or two pages of uh, that short letter in the New Testament that will serve as our text this morning. Uh, while, while you're turning, let me encourage you that uh, there's still water in the baptistry. We have uh, two more folks slotted to be baptized over the next couple of weeks. And uh, man, we're pumped to, to keep going what God's doing in our church. And so if you're here this morning, biblically, the, the starting line of faith, the public declaration, isn't uh, merely a prayer that you pray in private, but it's a public baptism where you testify to God's saving work in your life. And so if you're here and you're watching these be baptized, you're like, you know, I've never done that. And God has done a saving work in my life. Would you see one of the pastors? We would love uh, to slot you over the next several Sundays and allow you to testify to God's saving grace uh, in your life. You can find any of us after the service and we'll get that scheduled for you. If you're dropping in with us uh, from out of town, we are in the middle of a series uh, looking at the fruits of the Spirit, specifically from uh, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, this uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where he contrasts the fruits of the flesh with the fruits of the Spirit. And he says the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so each of the weeks, over the course of the summer, we've been looking at one of these fruits, kind of teasing them out and identifying them, and considering what evidence we have of our lives, of the fruit of God's Spirit at work in these ways. So if you remember where we've been looking at love first week, this idea of a consistency or of a sacrificial giving of yourself to promote the best interest of another person. This is what we've seen throughout what we've sung and the scripture that John read earlier, that God, in his great love, that he demonstrated his love, not merely in an emotional affect from heaven, but through stooping, taking on the form of a servant, and dying a substitutionary death to satisfy God's wrath for us. So this is love in action. The next week we looked at the virtue or the fruit of joy, this idea that God is good and that he is for us. This is quite a contrast from the worldly notion of happiness. We would say, and, and certainly this is something that the Spirit of God dwelling in believers, he's the only one capable of doing this, of producing this, that we would believe that God is good and that he is for us. Two weeks ago, we considered the notion of peace, this pursuit of unity with all people who are made in God's image, that God, by virtue of his Spirit, has broken down, Ephesians 2, the dividing wall of hostility that once separated us from one another as well as before God, and by virtue of that, that we have an obligation as God's Spirit is at work in our lives to pursue harmony with those God places in our path. And then lastly, the notion of patience. Last week we considered this consistency of emotion and action in the midst of a frustrating world. If you've lived many days, you are well aware that this is a frustrating world that we live in. And so patience is demonstrated not merely in our ability to you know, wait in line at Fuddruckers this afternoon, but consistently throughout life that we would have a consistency of action and emotion in the midst of a broken, 
fallen, and frustrating world. Now, it's important for us to pause right there and ask, well, what are these fruits doing? What we don't want to do every week is send you out with a behavior list that you're trying to obey. Well, go be patient, wish you well, because we recognize that we all stink at this, right? We're all going to fail over and over and over again. So what's happening here is we're using these virtues, these character traits, as evidence for us. They're, they're check engine lights of the work of God's Spirit in our lives. And so it's a little bit counterintuitive, but the way to get after these character traits isn't to run after the character trait, but it's to do what Paul says elsewhere throughout, uh, particularly in Ephesians, that we would walk in the Spirit, that we would not quench the Spirit, that we would be in step with the Spirit. So the aim is worship, the aim is to fuel the Spirit, and then it's the Spirit's work to create these virtues coming out of our lives. So what we should do if we're not seeing the character trait is say, oh, then something is broken in my fueling of the Spirit. I'm either quenching it with known sin, or I'm not feeding it through spiritual disciplines, through engagement with the body. Okay, so that's, that's what we want to run after. What we've also said throughout these fruits of the Spirit is that they work as a, as a group, and they're supposed to be indicative of all of us. So it may be helpful to contrast the fruits of the Spirit with another common notion in the church, the gifts of God's Spirit. So the gifts of God's Spirit, by virtue of our salvation, the Spirit of God lives in us and gives us the supernatural ability to excel in certain specific characteristics that build up the body of Christ, engage in his mission in the world. Those are distinct for every one of us in the room this morning. There are going to be different gifts of God's Spirit, and you're going to have one, and somebody next to you is going to have another, and those are going to develop at different stages and in different ways. Fruits of the Spirit aren't like that. What we've said is that these work as a pack, and they're meant to work for all of us. They would be indicative of all of us who have trusted Christ. So it's not as if you can say, I'm the love guy, right? Uh, I'm the patience guy. We don't, we don't get that. We don't get the ability to pick a singular fruit and say, I'm going to excel in that one, and I'm really going to stink in all the rest. That if the Spirit is truly at work in our lives, He's going to grow us in the demonstration of each of these virtues. Now, they may ripen in different stages, okay? So you may ripen more quickly in the area of patience than perhaps you do in gentleness, but we're going to see corresponding growth the longer we fuel the Spirit in our lives in each of these areas. This week, we're going to consider the notion of kindness, and here's what I want to do with us, using Paul's letter to Philemon as a case study for us. I want you to imagine that you are seven years old. Okay, this is uh, rewind a long way for some of you, all right? Seven years old, hot summer day like this afternoon. You've been outside playing with your friends, and you're just drenched in sweat, and somebody turns on the garden hose, right, or hooks it up to a sprinkler and just sprays cool water all over the kids, and they're just celebrating in joy as they run through the sprinkler. Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to load the water hose with the definition of kindness. I want to define the water that should be coming out of the hose, and then I want to spray it in four different directions. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So I want to define what kindness is, load the water hose, 
And then I want to point it in four specific ways and call us to action in light of this biblical definition. So the letter to Philemon, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So right off the bat, we see that this is a bit of a different uh, letter from Paul. He's writing here specifically to an individual, Philemon. Know a little bit of the context of this letter. Philemon uh, seems to be a leading member of the church in Colossae, a church that we don't really know how the church was established not given a sense of was it Paul's founding or was it some other believers, but the church was established along Paul's missionary journey. And he writes, fast forward, we're early 60s probably at this point, he writes from prison back to the church, our letter of Colossians, and to an individual in the church, Philemon. And we get this one specific letter, most likely this is a wife and son who are mentioned here. Uh, corresponding in the letter. But then notice the end there in verse 2, and to the church in your house. This is just an aside, but we've got a letter from one individual Paul to another individual Philemon, and the assumption is this letter is going to be read before the church. Church is going to know what's going on, not only the church then, but the church throughout all history. And Paul's going to angle at Philemon and make a really bold request in this letter. I, I imagine us reading it in our context thinking, dude, He's all up in that brother's business in front of everybody, right? Like, shouldn't this be like a private email that we kind of keep to the side? But the assumption here is that the church actually is all up in everybody's business all the time, all right? Particularly when it comes to the embodiment of these virtues and these fruits, that there's an assumption that not only is Philemon going to hear the word from Paul, but the rest of the church is going to know what Paul says to him and help him, fuel him towards obedience. And what we're going to see is while the language of kindness is not mentioned in this letter, the letter oozes kindness. It's all over and it moves in various directions. So consider the outset, the kindness that we're going to see from Philemon to the, the saints more specifically, beginning in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So we're given a bit of a context here at the outset. We know that Paul has relationship with Philemon. We're not exactly sure how, but he has relationship, specific relationship. He's going to speak of him later as like he was a father to Philemon. And he says that he's remembering, and you notice this in other of Paul's letters, he's remembering Philemon, remembering the church consistently. It's this notion that Paul was intentional to pray for those, and as the Lord brought the churches and the individuals to mind, he was specific to mention them, to bring them before the Father in prayer. And specifically, his prayer here is that the sharing of your faith, that the fellowship of your faith 
may become effective. So there's an outcome. This isn't just theoretical unity in the church, but that the sharing of the faith from Paul to Philemon and throughout the church is going to produce something. It's going to produce something specifically, Ephesians 2.10, that uh, John mentioned earlier. It's going to produce certain good works. The faith is going to have an outcome. James is going to say, uh, without works, your faith is dead, that it's going to result in something. And specifically here, it's going to result in certain actions towards Onesimus. And he says, concluding this paragraph, I derive much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because, of the hearts, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is a great place to press pause for a minute and just do a bit of introspection. Paul is able to write to this brother and say that he has acted in such a way towards Paul and to all the saints that he's built a reputation as a refresher. Right? The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I derive much joy and comfort from being with you because you're a known refresher. That might be a good point of, could anyone say that of you, right? This would be the check engine, like, like that your presence in the room, your presence conversationally, your presence when you walk home at six o'clock brings refreshment. People find joy and comfort from your presence because you're marked by this trait. Well, this seems to be true of Philemon and gives Paul great confidence in writing what he's going to write him, encouraging him to do because he's known to demonstrate these kinds of actions. Let me skip back and just say there in the bottom corner. What I want to do is just is hold for us, while the letter doesn't mention kindness, I want to hold some, some synonyms or some language that would help us load the water hose and define what we're after here. So you might kind of tease out this refreshment or refreshing, okay? And then we're going to see kindness from Onesimus to Paul. Onesimus is the subject of the letter. Paul continues writing this accordingly. Though I want you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now, indeed, he is useful to you and to me. So I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So here, the subject of the letter, this Onesimus, a former slave bond servant in Philemon's house, has been converted through his acquaintance with Paul. Paul has become his father. Paul uses this language elsewhere of people like Timothy and Titus, demonstrating a a certain discipleship relationship that he has, most likely being the one who led them to faith originally and most certainly the one who taught them to obey all things Christ has commanded because the Spirit is with us to the end of the age. He says that Onesimus became my child in my imprisonment. And then he does what you can imagine Onesimus would kind of roll his eyes at, plays on his name. His name actually means useful, okay? 
So he says, this dude was once useless. You can imagine dude's got that joke a few times, right? Dude, you're useless, right? Uh, Any time your name has a natural pun, it kind of gets annoying. So this guy was useless, but now he's become useful. And so Paul does something pretty remarkable. He sends him back to Philemon with this request from Paul. And Paul says, the reason I can trust that he's going to be useful to you when he comes back is because he's been really useful to me while in prison. Now, we don't know the nature both of the refreshment that Philemon offered to the saints, nor the usefulness necessarily that Onesimus brought to Paul. Perhaps for Philemon, he was teaching. Probably he was leading, giving counsel, maybe even financial blessing to the church in some way. In a very similar way, it seems like Onesimus was ministering to Paul in his older age, perhaps getting him certain things, perhaps speaking words of encouragement to him in this stage. But he says, notice this, that Onesimus did for Paul what Philemon would have done had he been there. So he's kind of a liaison, as it were, for this one whom he once served under. And so Paul goes to great strides. I'm sending him back, sending my very heart. You can see that Paul's laboring over this request. I I would have been glad to keep him with me. I wanted this brother just to stay and continue what he was doing, but I'm going to send him back with this request. So if we're holding another word, we might say refreshment, refresh, useful. Onesimus was useful to Paul while he was in prison. Then, the kindness that's asked from Philemon to Onesimus, verse 14. I preferred to do nothing without your consent. So Paul says, I could have commanded you, I could have just kept him here, I didn't have to send him back, but I didn't want to do that, because that's not the way Christians are supposed to operate. I, I, I wanted to allow this brother to come back and make this request, and for me to write the letter to make the request on his behalf. In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted with me, for, uh, parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord." Now, you might run at a natural assumption about what Paul is asking. It's a bit unclear the nature of the ask. He may have been uh, imploring Philemon just to grant Onesimus his freedom, specifically. He may have been writing to say, receive him back without punishment. We're going to see later that there's, at least he left poorly and perhaps some overturns that he stole things on his way out. The break was not good whatever the situation was. So perhaps he's exhorting him to bring him back without punishment for his actions. But even in that case, Onesimus coming back to Philemon, he would have been economically dependent on this guy going forward. So whether it was as a free or as a slave, there's a sense that he's going to be tied to Philemon. Or thirdly, he may have been saying, I'm going to send him back so that you can bless him to return back to me and continue the work that he's been doing. This may be the even more that Paul mentions later in the letter. So we're not exactly sure the nature of the request, but what we can be sure of is that it was a big request. 
I mean, this is massive. For one, the cultural overtones. If Philemon, a slave owner, brings back Onesimus without punishment, what kind of standing is he setting for the culture at large? This is not what you do, right? This is not how you act. And if Onesimus has actually stolen things, imagine the nature of the request, receive him back. The guy who broke up in a really bad way is going to come back and he's actually going to be useful to you this time. Really? This is a big ask that Paul is making on behalf of this one who he has fathered while in prison. And the nature of the ask is the switch in relationship. There at the end of the phrase we just read that Onesimus is now a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you? So by virtue of his change in standing, one who was once useless and cut off from Christ is now in Christ and useful, therefore be good to him. So refreshment, usefulness, goodness. Seems that Paul's picking up these phrases. Next week we'll consider goodness as the next fruit of the Spirit. And then lastly, Kindness from Paul on behalf of Onesimus. One, just at the outset, is him writing this letter. I mean, this is Paul going to bat for this guy. But specifically, he says in verse 17, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owning, owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So, so Paul clearly has reason to manipulate this situation. You owe me, and this is what leads many to assume that in some way Paul was responsible for Philemon's conversion as well. You owe me yourself, right? Something has happened that would demand that type of loyalty. But he says, hey, if this brother's done anything, charge it to my account. Now, at this point, Paul's in prison, about to die, and he's already indicated that he's an old man. So if Paul says, how's he going to get the money to do that? Most likely, he's going to call in the financial backers who have been funding his missionary efforts and say, we've got to make this situation right. So Paul, Paul is putting his neck out there for this former slave and saying, if anything needs to be righted, I got it. Charge it to my account. Because he wants to be some benefit, or he wants some benefit from Philemon in the Lord. And then he ends with this refrain that we've seen earlier. Refresh my heart in Christ. Again, appealing to where this letter started. It says, you're known for refreshing the saints. Here's a great opportunity to do just that. And then he concludes with this in verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you're going to do even more than I say, which again is the place that some conclude that he was asking and to bring him back without punishment, and Paul's confident that he's going to go even more and send Onesimus back to serve Paul in some form or fashion. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Articus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The end. 
This is a very common letter from Paul and that he ends with this type of greeting from these individuals that he calls uh, fellow workers. You may do what I do when we come to the fruits of the Spirit, like love, man, that seems significant, right? That's a big deal. I mean, that's a high watermark virtue within the Christian church. When we get like out of the first four and get to kindness, goodness, I mean, gentleness, it seems so bland, right? It's just like, really? Kindness? It's like the JV version of love. But it doesn't seem that that's the way Paul thinks of these type of acts. Consider passages like in the end of 1 Corinthians 16. What has been up to this point a no-fun letter, particularly for the church. And he writes at the end, I, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service for the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Remember, this is the language he just used at the end of Philemon about this group. They're fellow workers, fellow laborers. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. And then the give recognition to such people. Right? So much for a bland virtue. He says, these fellow workers, these fellow laborers, people you've never heard of, most of them, right? These that refresh my spirit, like they deserve recognition for this work they have done. Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life. A very similar thing is what Paul said. He's risking his neck for Onesimus. He says, they, they, these fellow workers did that. To whom not only I give thanks, but all of the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So, so these two get a reputation as a refresher, as one who risks their necks. And he says, not, you're, you're known not only here, but throughout all the Gentile churches. <laughs> you got a reputation for this. Philippians 2, very similar. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God showed him mercy, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Very similar phraseology here. He made up what was lacking. So Onesimus serves Paul on behalf of Philemon. He represents Philemon to Paul during this stage, and he says here, this individual risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me, which then allows us to get at a core definition of what we're talking about when we speak of kindness. What do we see in the four different ways that kindness is manifested in Philemon? And what do we see in these corresponding passages? Kindness defined are in intentional actions that bless or benefit. 
That's the, the two-word refrain I want playing in your head as you go this afternoon, that, that kindness, are, it's active, this is not mere thought, and the action runs at blessing and benefiting. Certainly this is going to be true of Onesimus in this letter. It's also true of what Philemon has demonstrated to the saints. It's true of what Paul is demonstrating to Onesimus. Over and over again we see the church demonstrating intentional actions that bless or benefit one another. And we can have confidence in defining kindness this way, and in fact defining any of the fruits of the Spirit, because it is these virtues are core to who God is. So when we read in Leviticus 11, be holy as I am holy. Holiness looks like the embodiment of these virtues of which God excels in. It's the fruit of God's Spirit because it's His Spirit that's producing it. So kindness is something God's really good at. Okay? We see that throughout the Old Testament. Uh, our Bibles translate the, uh, certain phrases various ways, but you'll notice here in Isaiah 63, this is one of a myriad of places we could point to where a prophet or the psalmist speaks of the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Or some of your versions there are going to translate, according to his loving kindness. It's as if throughout the Old Testament, love is the rocket fuel for kindness. Love manifests in bless and benefit others. This is what God does consistently to the nation of Israel. All the way back in Genesis 12, we saw this, right? That God, his initial promise to Abram was, I'm going to make a great people out of you. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to make your family as numerous as the stars of the heavens, sand on the seashore. I'm going to give you a great land. Talk about blessing and benefiting. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to benefit you. And all of God's actions throughout the Old Testament, in spite of the sin of the people, are derived from those two aims. God's aim to keep his covenant promise by blessing and benefiting his covenant people. We see it specifically, God's blessing personified in, in certain actions to individuals. You guys remember where we were a few months ago, if you've been around TCC, in the book of Ruth. Remember this, this story of the outsider who comes back into Bethlehem with mother-in-law in tow, right? no food and no family, and she just so happens to stumble into the field of the one who can provide for her, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And when Naomi, the mother-in-law, hears of this, she says, may he, speaking of Boaz here, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So the demonstration of provision for Ruth and Naomi was the manifestation of God's kindness says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to benefit you here. You're going to think you just stumbled into a field, but I'm going to orchestrate things providentially so you're, that you're at the very place that you need to be 
so that these outcomes are manifest. And what does Boaz do? He, he, he throws the doggy bag at Ruth this first night, if you remember the story, right? She gets food upon food upon food and goes back, and they say, God's kindness has been demonstrated here. David does the same thing in the classic story to Mephibosheth. You guys remember this, right? The lame one who is in the family of Saul, Jonathan, the one who has sought to kill David. And David says, I'm going to bring this individual to the table so that he can feast. I'm going to show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. A lame beggar without access to the table. David says, because of your family, I'm going to bless you and benefit you just to show my covenant faithfulness to your people. The prophets are going to speak of this as indicative of covenant faithfulness of the people to God. He's told you, oh man, what's good? What does the Lord require? What does he want? Sum up all the sacrifices, all the Old Testament law, like put it in a package. What were you after? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. This is the outflow, the outworking of God's faithfulness to his people, worshipful obedience looks like loving kindness. It's easy for us in the church to become intimidated by high-sounding theological words and concepts and reflect on the history of the church and imagine that scholars have spent years upon years upon years plumbing the depths of the scriptures and haven't come close to hitting the bottom. And what that can do in many of us is produce a certain inadequacy. Like, do I actually measure up? Can I be a faithful Christian? You want to boil, like, faithful Christian worshipful obedience down to its core essence? It's virtues like kindness, right? It's not PhDs in theology. Those are good and those have their place. But we can all grow in sanctification and kindness, and in fact, at the end of your life, if you were going to be marked by something, wouldn't it be far more profound to be marked by something like kindness than to be marked by a certain theological precision that is disconnected from the embodiment of these fruits, right? Paul's going to say at the end of the day, if you don't have love, you're just a clang gong, crashing cymbal. So if you feel inadequate as you sit under the teaching of God's word each week, be encouraged. The high watermark are these fruits. And this is something that any of us can embody. And then if you want to see kindness on display, look no further than the person of Christ. Titus 3, when the goodness and loving kindness, same phraseology as we just saw in the Old Testament, of, our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, but, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now we could spend a dozen sermons on that singular paragraph, but at its essence, what Paul, the point Paul is making is that the goodness and kindness of God were demonstrated in the sending of Jesus Christ. 
the demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness to his promises was seen in, in, in Jesus leaving heaven, taking on the form of a servant, living the life that you could not live, dying the death that you deserve, and granting us righteousness that you will never earn, and dwelling you by the power of his Holy Spirit. So we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Talk about blessing and benefiting. If you are here and you are in Christ Jesus, you have received the full measure of the kindness of God, and you, above all people, are blessed or benefited from a God who is a really good at giving good gifts, right? Okay? So you have received this great blessing and benefit, and the outworking of that, the fruit of God's Spirit, the same God who did that through Christ is now at work in you to produce those characteristics towards other people, okay? This is significant. So where are we aiming that? If kindness is blessing and benefiting others, how, how do we, how do we, if that's the, the water that's in the water hose, where are we spraying it? I want to direct it uh, four specific ways. First, to your family. This seems to be the most natural outcome of blessing and benefiting. After all, you live with them a whole lot, right? You're around them a ton. But if we are honest, this could be the place that it is uh, most e easiest for us to become apathetic or passive when it comes to intentionally seeking ways to bless and benefit. But these fruits, by virtue of someone's relational proximity to you, they ought to, a wife or kids or whomever you're living around, they ought to see these fruits manifest in ways that perhaps the broader church will never see. Like, you super excel with the people that you're around the most. Sadly, it often flips, and we direct kindness towards those that we can have some relational distance with, right? Those that we're around for two or three hours a week. And we can bless and benefit them really easy and run back into whatever our selfish shell is, typically, and not direct that blessing and benefiting at those that we're around most often. So, question, church. What steps can you take to bless and benefit those that you're around most often? And here I'm going to define that as your family. If you don't have a spouse at this point, if you don't have a ch children at this point, now's the time to learn to do this. Like, figure out what it looks like to bless and benefit a roommate. If you don't grasp it there just because it's a wife one day, it's not going to become more natural to you. It might for, like, two months, okay? Then it's going to get really, really hard again. So taking steps to actively bless and benefit your family. Secondly, your church. What steps can you take to bless and benefit those that God has placed in your church? Now, this is why membership in the church and ch church, this is why we've got to run after church as show, because church as show doesn't allow us to work this out, okay? What allows us to work this out is relational connectivity with one another that forces us to know people and people to know us in such a way that they actually even know what blessing and benefiting would look like, right? You don't get that in this one hour, hour and a half on Sunday mornings. That's why church membership matters. That's why what Tim did is so significant. Because now we know, church, a target for our blessing and benefiting. We just got one added to our number, 10. Okay? 
And we commit, by virtue of membership, to direct blessing and benefiting at our brother, as long as he's a part of this church. Now, even in a church our size, it's impossible to do for us all. So where do you start? You start in a small group. You start with the people that you're sitting around. You start by putting some tangible faces to the direction of your blessing and benefiting. What would it look like? Um, My pastor in seminary used to say, uh, based on Philippians 2, uh, in every room that you walk in, you're always the least important person in the room. Don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Consider Christ who took the form of a servant. I agree, but the easy outcome of that is to leave that theoretical. Yeah, I'm the least important person in this room. I don't know 80% of you. What you've got to do is you've got to start putting faces to that. You've got to say, what does it look like for me to have eight or ten people in this church community that I am actively seeking to stoop in love, to bless and benefit, and not look out for my own interest? And the church, man, you talk about hitting on all cylinders, thriving, being a place of joy. What would happen if we were all acting in that way, right? If we all had a circle of eight or so that we were like, I'm, I'm actively looking out for how to bless and benefit you. Okay. Position it one more way. Spray the water hose in one more direction to the poor. This seems to be a natural outcome throughout the Old Testament, that the overflow of biblical worship is going to to ooze out, kindness is going to seep out in your care for the marginalized, the hurting, the oppressed, the poor. This may be financially impoverished. It could be relationally impoverished. You could define it in a host of different ways. But those who are marginalized, those who life has has dealt them a tough hand, the outcome of our worship and our kindness should be such that we're demonstrating blessing and benefiting to those that we can. Now, again, how do you do that? There are a ton of poor. There are a ton of marginalized in Greenville. Who does God in his sovereignty bring across your path? Okay. Now, we are wise to think, well, they might take advantage of it. I don't know. I've been taken advantage of before. The, the, the default pot, you've got to lean into bless and benefit. It's good to ask those questions, but it is okay for God's people to be taken advantage of every once in a while, right? It is, it, is, it is better for us to believe the best in people and lean into being, demonstrating kindness and love to others. If anyone was taken advantage of, it's Christ, right? He died a death that he didn't deserve. So 20 bucks here or there, right? A meal, trip to the grocery store, Like, these things, even if, right, we want to demonstrate, bless, and benefit consistently. And friends, let me, the reason I'm directing this in four ways is because if all that happens is you directing it in way number one towards your family, you get really, really selfish and ingrown. Because what happens if we're directing blessing and benefiting to our families? It has an impact personally for us because, I mean, we're one flesh with our spouse. So we bless and benefit her or him, something good, like we both grow. But some of this, some of this natural outcome, like towards the poor, who knows, right? You're not getting pats on the back. You're not a sermon illustration. You may never hear from the person again. And you have to train yourself and your family as you're leading your home, to say, let's aim kindness in some different directions other than just what's going to benefit the five of us that live in this house all the time. If not, even if you're acting and blessing and benefiting a spouse, you're going to get really selfish and ingrown. So it goes family and church and poor, and then lastly, those cut off from God in the church. Those who are cut off from God in the church. And there may be some overlap here. 
but those who are distant from God or distant from the church. That we are intentionally and actively thinking, how do I bless and benefit those who have no relationship with God and have no relationship with his church? This could overlap with some of the categories we've mentioned before. And again, we, we ask the question, but there are so many of those people. Application is, who do you know? Who has God put next to you on the street? When I aim the water hose of kindness, there you go. It's your neighbor. Okay? Who's God put beside you at a cubicle? You want to aim the water hose of kindness? There it is. Pick a few of those and aim the water hose of kindness in their direction. The only way this happens, friends, the only way it happens, if the water hose is loaded, we're being fueled by the power of God's Spirit, and we're pointing it in these directions, is that we intentionally reflect on how do I fuel God's Spirit in my life, and then how do I aim this thing specifically. For me, it's become a really good practice on Sunday nights to sit down and just ask myself these kinds of questions. What does it look like this week for me to bless and benefit the people that live in my home? What's one step I can take? And I'll tell you, I mean, it makes its way into my to-do list each week. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, like, specifically, who needs, who needs a call? Who needs a text message? Who needs an action? Who, whatever. What does it look like the poor? What does it look like for those cut off? What does it look like for our church? And then, secondly, to be on our toes as needs come. Like, this should be Ideal world, the fruit of God's. This should be the question you ask when you walk up those steps on Sunday morning. Right? Who has God sent me here to bless and benefit today? Okay. Far cry from the posture of, ah, that didn't really do anything for me today. Okay. Right? But what do I do to bless and benefit those that God has placed in my life? And perhaps that's a good way for us to end an application this morning is to give you some time to reflect on the outcome of blessing and benefiting. In those four directions, are there any that you're squandering opportunities, any that you're not reflecting on? Are you quenching or grieving God's Spirit in known ways that you would repent of those and that you would turn to Christ? And that you would think specifically about the outcomes of blessing and benefiting? to your family, your church, the poor, and those far from God and his church. We're going to take some space to reflect on those four directions as we close. If you just close your eyes, bow your head to block out some distractions around you. And as Lenny and the band comes to lead us to conclude our service this morning, let me invite you to spend a few moments in silent reflection and prayer maybe with a doodle pad in front of you to mark some outcomes, some blessing and benefiting that needs to result, that you would discuss that with God, that you would hear from Him the conviction that His Spirit brings and the outcomes that He desires. Our Father, as we bow before you now, we ask that your Spirit would produce what we cannot manipulate on our own. That you would, by the power of your Spirit, actively at work in our lives, that you would grow us into people who would be defined by refreshment, goodness, usefulness, kindness. These would be the 
marks of our homes, our neighborhoods, our church. That we would have a reputation, even in this Cherrydale community, of being a kind people. The only way that happens is if we grow in love for you, in worship of you, that your spirit enlarges our heart, convicts us of sin, and pushes us to faithful obedience. So as we conclude this morning by singing, reminding ourselves of your character, the nature of a kind God, would that produce these outcomes in our life so that you get glory and your name is praised. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.